Lord, I pray that you will protect our minds at this point. For I realize when we speak so forthrightly about Jesus that the evil one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour would like nothing more than to distract us, disrupt us with thoughts that run contrary to truth, would confuse us from knowing it, would keep us from rejoicing in the truth that we have. So, Father, I pray that you would keep us, speak to us, enable us to hear. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Please turn to Hebrews in chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, I want to read verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 Hear the word of God Therefore holy brothers You who share in the heavenly calling Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. I want to draw attention to two words, as I mentioned earlier in verse 1. And these two words are simply this, uh, consider Jesus. Now, I suppose they would be very um, appropriate words to say to someone who is not a believer. That is to say to an unbeliever that they ought to consider Jesus. They should consider um, his claims, for instance, that he claimed to be one with the Father. They should consider the fact that he claimed to be the bread of life, that is, that there is absolutely no spiritual sustenance apart from him, that he claimed to be the light of the world, that no one can see, spiritually speaking, see God without him. Uh, He claimed uh, to be the door, that is, the way to the Father. He claim to be the good shepherd, that is, if one is to be cared for and cared for by God, it's only by way of Christ, that he claimed to be the resurrection and the life, that, that no one really can, can rise from the dead and live without him. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no way to God except through him. He claimed to be the vine, that is, to be disassociated, disattached from him would mean that you would shrivel up and die. Uh, to Consider Jesus to consider his claims that he claimed to be the very son of God to consider his life of holiness to consider his death and the purpose for it to die for the sins of sinners to make propitiation that is to satisfy the wrath of God to consider the very fact that he rose again from the dead and conquered sin and death and as an affirmation of the very fact that his death sufficed that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father, we should consider, they should consider Jesus in all of that, consider who he is, and then consider themselves in light of who Jesus is. That if he died for the sins of sinners and he came from God, doesn't that say that we're sinners in need of a Savior and how then should we respond? It's very appropriate, it would seem, 
to tell an unbeliever to consider Jesus, to think on him hard and to consider him deeply and to weigh him up against everything else, every other way of reconciliation to God that could possibly be thought of, consider Jesus. But the author of Hebrews is writing to believers when he says, consider Jesus. This isn't just the vocation of one who doesn't know him yet, but it's the life of one who does know him, the center of the Christian's life should be around considering, thinking about, meditating upon, reflecting upon, in every circumstance, and bringing Jesus to bear, we should consider him. Consider Jesus. Notice how he begins. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. He's, he's talking to those he refers to heavenly brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews, as the biblical writers using brothers as a generic. For siblings, if you will. Holy brothers, holy that is set apart. Not so much as who we are in and of ourselves, but who we are because of Christ. He sets us apart. Notice in chapter 2 of Hebrews, in verse 11, speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews writes, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Well, Jesus is the one that sanctifies, and we're the ones who are sanctified. The little word sanctify is the same word for holy. Uh, we could translate sanctify as holify, if it was a word, um, that is set apart, made holy in the very sight, in the very standing with God. Jesus is the one who, who does that. So when the author of Hebrews writes to Christians, he is able to say holy brothers, that is, those who have been set apart by God to be the very brothers of Jesus. And we know it's the very brothers of Jesus for whom he died. Notice it says, verse 11 again, chapter 2. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. The very brothers of Jesus. Not everyone is a brother to Jesus. One doesn't become a brother to Jesus simply by being born as a human being. You remember... There was a time that when Jesus was uh, standing, talking to a group of people, and Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters were standing outside, and someone said to him, um, Are these, is this your mother and these your brothers? And Jesus said, No. My mother and my brothers are the ones who do the will of my Father. And as John introduces Jesus in John in chapter 1, the Apostle John He says, but to those who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave them the right or the authority to be called children of God. And as Jesus is the son, we are the sons of God, the children of God, and thus he our brother. You see, inherently, or at our birth, we were brothers, if we want to put it this way, with Adam. We were in his family. And thus, the inheritance that was his would be ours. And what we inherited from Adam was a sinful condition, a sinful nature that was under the condemnation of God because of the guilt that comes with that sin. And now to be called a holy brother is an amazing statement. 
Because now the author of Hebrews is saying, you've been taken out of that family, if you will, of Adam. You've been taken out of that household, if you will. You've been set apart. You've been separated out. It's really what that word holy means when you're making a sandwich this afternoon uh, for lunch. I'm sorry for you if that's the best you get on Sunday, but I'm going to a barbecue. Um, but, um, but when you're making your sandwich and you open the loaf of bread, you see, and you pull out one piece of bread from that loaf, you've made it holy. You've set it apart. And there's a sense in which the author of Hebrews is saying we're in this loaf of Adam, if you will. But by God's sovereign grace, he took us out. And he put us in another loaf. And that is in Christ. And now you see our inheritance is the inheritance of our elder brother Jesus. Not our elder brother Adam. And so you see this inheritance that now is ours in Christ is eternal life. And so when the author of Hebrews writes to these to consider Jesus, he's speaking of nothing short than that which is miraculous because he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. He's saying you've been called by God in this set-apartness, in this being a holy brother. It means really that, that a calling has come to you from heaven that is from God. Think of that, he says. If you're one who's a believer in Christ, understand that the reason that you're a believer in Christ is because God has spoken your name. And the, the illustration we have in Scripture really is Lazarus being raised from the dead. And there he was dead for four days, the Scripture says. The old King James Version says, he stinketh. It's a rather nice way of putting it, I suppose. But he did, he was dead, he was dead, dead. And Jesus spoke his name. That was a heavenly calling. It was a calling from one who was from heaven with the very power of God. And it brought him to life. And thus the same has happened to us spiritually. Is that we've received a heavenly calling. This isn't an earthly thing. This isn't a thing of small consequence. This is a great thing that's taken place. He says because we're sharers, we're partakers in this heavenly calling. Think of that. That's who you are as a believer in Christ. Do you remember that... One we refer to as the rich young ruler. He was rich and he seemed to have some authority over others. And he was young and he came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. And he listed those commandments which dealt with love for other people. And, the, and he said, I've done all that. And Jesus understood that he didn't really get it in the context of his own heart. And so Jesus challenged him. He said, you know, if you were really that perfectly loving, what you would do is really sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the scripture said he went away sad because he had a great deal of wealth. And that's really where his heart was. Jesus was able to determine by that challenge. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, it's, it's really difficult for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples got exactly what Jesus was saying because they knew what an eye of a needle was. And they knew that the only thing that could throw, go through that is something about the size of a thread, the end of a thread. And, 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 and then the camel was huge. And he said, that couldn't happen. And they said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said this. He said, that which is impossible with men is possible with God. 
And so when the author of Hebrews writes to these Christians, us, he's saying this. He says, holy brothers, sharers in this heavenly calling, what was impossible for you was possible for God. And that's why it's a heavenly thing. It's not an earthly thing. It's a heavenly thing. It comes from him, the very power of God. And we mustn't make light of just this very fact, this very expression as our own self-identity, as holy brothers who share in this heavenly calling. We partake of that. We understand that that's exactly what Ezekiel talked about when he said that God would come on a particular occasion and would rip out hearts of stone, that is, hearts that, were, that, that, that couldn't respond to him. It was impossible for them to respond, these hearts of stones. And he said, I'll put in a heart of flesh that is a soft, beating one that's lively and alive. When Jeremiah said that I'll write my law upon their heart, he said, I'm going to make them people whose very disposition is to follow after me, to love me and to know me. It's the very thing that Jesus spoke to when he spoke to Nicodemus about being born again, being born of the Spirit. There has to be an internal heart transplant, transformation there. A new orientation of life implanted into us in place of the old. Being born again, born from above. And this isn't something you can do on your own. None of us conceived ourselves physically. None of us can see, can conceive ourselves spiritually. It's a work of God. That's the amazing thing about it. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he says to them, he says, You were once darkness. He doesn't simply say you were once in darkness. He says your whole being was darkness. It was void, if you will, of life. Void of light. Void of God. And now he says you were once darkness. Now you are light in the Lord, which means you have life from Him and you can see. Paul writes to the church in Colossae and he says you have been transplanted, really, or taken out of, transplanted from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of my dear Son. And so we mustn't make light of this. We need to see the ones who are to consider Jesus. That's us. The very definition of our lives is that we're to consider Jesus. You know, you could say, what is a Christian? And you could give all kinds of different kinds of answers to that. But one of the valid ones would certainly be a Christian is one who considers, who weighs, who ponders, who lives out knowing Jesus. He's the very center of our lives and we consider him in every situation. So the question then is, what are we to really consider about him? Now notice, therefore, holy brothers, verse 1, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Really, these two expressions are summaries of what the author of Hebrews has already told us in chapters 1 and chapter 2. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's interesting. This is the only place in the whole Bible that the word apostle is used of Jesus. And we know generically the word apostle means one who is sent. And that's, you see, very significant. He was sent from heaven. He came from somewhere. He didn't just simply arrive uh, through the normal means of conception as a human being, but he was sent Conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was sent. He came from his Father. He was sent from heaven, this apostle, to bring a message, to bring truth to us that we could really see it and understand it. He's the very expression of God to us. In fact, I looked all these up. I won't read them all to you. 
But even in the Gospel of John, there's over 40 occasions where Jesus refers to himself as having been one who is sent. You don't need to look at these. I'll go too quickly for you to keep up with me. But John chapter 4, for instance, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. When Jesus is talked about as the apostle of our confession, that is what we believe to be true and what we speak to be true about him, he is the one who sent and he came for that very reason. That very reason to accomplish the work which his father had sent him. And so the question is, has he done that? Well, what was his work? His work was to seek and to save those who were lost. He came to save his people from their sins. And do you understand that if you're a believer in Christ, if that's your confession, then he's your apostle of that. He's the very one who was sent by God on the particular mission to save you. Now, I don't know. That always makes me shiver when I think about that. To think that the great God in heaven has called me because he had sent this one to accomplish a work and I was part of that. I, I, that's just amazing to me. It's, just, I, it's hard to even think about it. It's hard to get too excited about it even in the sense because it seems so unreal, but it's so true. How else could it be? Uh, I read to you in this time we've been labeling the announcement as the service begins from John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So he was sent for that purpose. An apostle is always sent with a purpose. When Jesus sent out his apostles, he sent them out with the message in order to proclaim the kingdom of God. That was their purpose. And in the midst of that purpose, that, that message would save those who would believe. Now, when the apostle Jesus is sent, he's sent with a particular purpose so that he would raise up the very ones the Father had given him on the last day. And if you're a believer in Christ, you see, that's you. That's the very promise of God. That's what it means that he's the apostle of your confession. If you say that Jesus is the apostle of my confession, you're saying he's the one who is sent to do the will of the Father so that I would be saved. He's your apostle in that sense. He's the apostle, the apostle of our confession. And in chapter 1, you see, this is why we listen to Jesus, because he was the one sent. You remember all the things that just the opening verses of Hebrews tells us about Jesus. It says that he's spoken to us by his son. That is, he's the apostle sent to speak. He said, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's God. Sent by God. With a heavenly purpose of giving us life. He's the apostle of our confession. But not only that, we're to consider the fact that he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Which means that what we're trusting in is that in accomplishing the will of the Father, he became like us. 
our high priest to represent us perfectly. Having become like us in every way, he made propitiation for the sins of the people. So we're trusting that he was sent for the particular purpose of saving us. And not only that, but then he did that by becoming our high priest to represent us and to make propitiation for our sins, that is, to pay our debt to God. Not only the debt of obedience, which he did by his life, but also the debt to cover the punishment for our sin. And we're to consider that all the time. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't ever let that stray from your mind as a Christian. It isn't something that you think of once and believe and move on. It's something that always informs your life. We never get away from the fact that he was sent for me. Without him, I have no hope. We never get over the fact that he was sent as me, to represent me, to take upon my life and my sin, that I might belong to God. That's what we're to consider. That's always to be on our minds. Think about the last week. How many times was that on your mind? You say, well, Bill, I can't think about that all the time. I have a job. I have kids, you know. I've got things to do. I know that. But I venture to say, if you are married, that's never far from your mind. That's who you are. You understand that's who you are. And that's always there in the context of your life. And if you have children, they're always there. Some of you moms are going, yeah, they really are. But they're always there. You always know that. That's part of your identity. That's who you are. That's always a consideration. If something comes up, you think of them. Well, how will that work in the context of my family? And if you have a job, that's always on your mind. Even if you're not there, you're aware of the fact that that's an obligation, that's a responsibility for you. If something comes up, you're thinking, how will this fit in the context of my job? And Jesus says, I want you to consider me first and foremost in the context of your family, in the context of your job, in the context of your leisure time, in the context of everything. I'm the Lord of all that. I'm the apostle and high priest of your confession. I want you to live that out. So we're to consider Jesus as believers in Christ. And, and not only are we to consider Jesus as the apostle and high priest of our confession, but we're to consider him in comparison with Moses. Uh, that's a little bit of a twist, isn't it? We're to consider him in comparison with Moses. And you say, well, why Moses? Well, because if you're somebody writing a book called Hebrews... You have a, a sense of Judaism and you know how important Moses is in the context of that. And, and, and what the author of Hebrews is going to do here is going to say, well, think of Moses and compare him to Jesus. And what you'll find in the midst of that is that Jesus is in a whole other category than even Moses. For instance, if I had a basketball recruit that I wanted to bring to you and I said, consider Michael Jordan. Now, understand this recruit is more glorious than him. You go, okay, I'll look. Well, he's saying, look at Moses. And when you make this comparison to Moses, you'll realize that Jesus is in a whole other category, more glorious than Moses. Don't trust Moses. And the Hebrews can think of no person greater than Moses. I mean, Abraham was great. It was from him that they were descended and the very first promises of God came to Abraham and the promises to Abraham underlie so much in the context of God's covenant to us and his promise of salvation. But still Moses was greater than 
Abraham. And David was great because he was the prototypical king. He was the one who ruled and reigned. He was the great king. And there would always be somebody on his throne. But, but again, Moses was integral. So much more even in their thinking than David. And so as we consider Moses, we consider his miraculous early life. He was never supposed to live. You, you know that story, I suspect. At least you've seen the cartoons. But Moses, you remember, was born at a time in Egypt when the Pharaoh and the king of Egypt said to the midwives, when you go to deliver a baby boy, kill him. Don't let him live. Now the midwives feared God more than the king, so they would let the babies live. And when Pharaoh asked, "How? why are you doing that? They would say, well, you know, the Hebrew women are strong and sturdy and they give birth even before we get there. And so he said, all right, then I'll instruct my people to kill the Hebrew baby boys. Don't let any of them live. And Moses was born and when his mother saw him, she hid him away for three months. And when he got it too big to hide, you remember, she made this little basket and she put him by the reeds in the river. And she sent her daughter to keep watch to see what would happen to him. And you remember what happened. The king's daughter, ironically, this is just one of the wonderful ironies of God. The king's daughter, the Pharaoh's daughter, viewed this basket, opened it. One of her servant girls brought it. And there was this baby And it just so happened that Moses' sister was close by. She ran and she said, would you like me to get a Hebrew woman to come in to nurse this child who's now crying? And Pharaoh's daughter said, sure. And so who did they get but Moses' mom who came and nursed him and kept him as that little boy, even as he romped around the king's palace. And he grew up there. They knew he was a Hebrew baby, but he grew up there in the midst of that. And you remember the story. He killed an Egyptian, ended up fleeing. And for 40 years he was away. But it was amazing that he was even alive, that he even lived in that day. And then even lived because he had committed this crime and was able to flee, lived in Midian for 40 years. And you remember then what happened. He saw this bush that was a fire but didn't become consumed. Now, I don't know if you've just heard that so many times that it just sort of brushes by you, but it's an amazing thing. Isn't it ever happened to you like that? Any of your friends? You got stories? We once caught the neighbor's bush on fire on the 4th of July, but it consumed a bush. Which had to be replaced. Um, the neighbor moved. <laughs> but... Um, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Just imagine God coming... And speaking audibly in this consuming fire that doesn't consume the bush. Moses experienced that. He went back, you remember, and he was able to speak plagues into existence by the power of God. And then draw them back. End them. He was the very one who then took his rod and and, and held it out over this river, sea, the Red Sea. And it, it opened up. And it dried out and the people perhaps two million of them who had left Egypt walked across and then of course he lowered it and it came over when the enemies came after them he was the very one who could speak to a rock and it would have enough water to quench the thirst of these two million people he asked God for food God sent a manna and quail 
He's the one that when people came against him, his very own family, to, to come against his authority, that God defended Moses and even killed those who would come against him. He was the very one who went up on the mountain and the scripture said spoke to God face to face. He put out a little tent and he would go into it and he would meet with God even there. And God would meet as a friend meets with a friend. This is God who's doing this. Do you have such an audience? No. But Moses did. That's how great he was. And, and, and the scripture says that his face would even glow when he would return from these encounters with God. And he was the very one given the law, so he was the very one who brought to the people the means of grace through which they could be saved, through which God could live in their presence. He brought to them the law, not just the commandments of morality, but also the law of sacrifice and, and, and ceremony so that they could live in the very presence of God. And that was Moses. Even Jesus quoted Moses quite often when questioned. He would say, didn't Moses say? So Moses is no small potatoes. In fact, even here in this passage, it says that Moses was faithful in all God's house. As you look at the house of God, the people of God, the household of God in the Old Testament, even that Moses was faithful. It isn't that he was sinless because we know he sinned, but but he was faithful to God. That's who Moses was. And so he says, now compare Jesus to him. And he says this. He says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, if you're tracking with the author of Hebrews, you're saying, who could be more glorious than Moses? I mean, mean, Buddha couldn't be more glorious than Moses. Muhammad couldn't be more glorious than Moses. Confucius couldn't be more glorious than Moses. I mean, who do we know, even in the context of our day, who could make the claims who've lived the life that Moses lived? So well, Jesus is in a whole other category. He's more glorious than even that. Don't, don't spend your life considering Moses anymore. Spend your life considering Jesus. In fact, even during the days of Moses, you weren't to consider Moses. Moses was simply to point you to God anyway. But now here's Jesus. And what makes Jesus more glorious? Well, he goes on to say this. It says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as a builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So much different. Moses was a servant in the house. Moses was part of the household. Moses was part of the people of God. And he served the people of God, but simply as a servant therein. So he brought to them from God the law. But that's all he could do. He could just simply bring the law to them and say, obey this. But they couldn't. And Moses couldn't get them to. And he brought them this law in the context of priests and The priests, of course, would come and represent people to God and and, and sacrifices were made on behalf of the people. And promises were made about land and all of that. But you see, none of that had any value unless Jesus would come. Jesus filled in all of that. Jesus made all of that real because he came and he obeyed the law perfectly. 
And he obeyed it at every turn for us. And he is the perfect high priest. And he is the sacrifice that's made. Because you see, the blood of bulls and goats really can't stand for us. They really don't have the value of a human life that can really take our place. But the blood of Jesus as our high priest can and did. And so you see, without Jesus, whatever Moses did would have been for nothing. In fact, Moses needed what Jesus did. And so he's saying, listen, I want you to consider to consider Jesus. And the question then is, when are we to consider Jesus? Are we to consider him when we're lonely? Because you see, he's the very one who understood loneliness better than any of us could. And yet he continued to be faithful, knowing that his father was with him even in the midst of all of that. And now he comes and says, I'll be with you. So you may feel lonely, but, but trust me, I'm really with you. We're to think of him when we're anxious, because Jesus knew anxiousness and all the circumstances that would bring anxiousness better than we would, especially as he faced his own death that night in the garden and he poured his heart out to God. He says, I understand your anxieties, But you can trust me. And you can trust my Father. And not only that, we should consider Him when we're doubting. I mean, when better to consider Jesus than we're doubting? In fact, that's the the very theme of this book of Hebrews. He wants to tell us how great God is, how great Christ is, supreme over everything, so that when we're doubting, we'll consider Jesus and we'll consider Him in comparison to everyone, even Moses and everything that could possibly be and be drawn to Him. So we're to consider Him when we're doubting. We're to consider Him when we're suffering. Because He says, listen, I've suffered in ways you can't even imagine. And yet I've continued in faith, so trust me. We're to consider him when we're afraid. Because he says, look at the cross. Haven't I proven by the cross my perfect love for you? And if I've loved you so perfectly, won't that cast out fear? Can't you then trust me, knowing that this is how much I love you? So in all these other matters, do you need to be afraid? Trust me. No, we're to consider him when we wonder if our life has meaning. And we think, oh, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Our life has meaning because it had meaning to God. It had such meaning to God that he would send this very one for us to give us life. So, of course, our lives have meaning. We're to consider him when we're tempted because he was tempted in every way such as we yet without sin. So when we face temptation, we should consider Jesus and go to him for the help that we need in order to overcome this temptation. We should... Consider him when we sin. Because what else are we to do? Because it's his blood that covers our sin that pleads for us. We should consider him when we're in trouble, whether it's in our business or whether it's in our family or whether it's at school or whether it's on the road or whether it's in the context of our health. Whatever it is, whatever point of trouble, because he's the very one who comes to help us in times of trouble, we should consider him when things go well. Because he's the very one who's ordained the circumstances of our lives to bless us. And so we can consider him when things go well. We should consider him when we see others in need and we don't know how to help them. Because we know that he does know how to help them. In fact, we should consider him when we see others in need and we don't want to help them. 
because he's the very one at work in us to manifest his compassion through us. So we should consider him even then. We should consider him when we're watching the news and we wonder if there's any hope for the world. Jesus should be on our mind when the news is on. Because we realize that he's the very one who can make it all right. We should consider Jesus when we're thinking about all those people who don't know Christ. Because he's the apostle and high priest of the confession of believers. And if there's anyone who must help them, it's him. And so we consider him as we pray for them. We consider him as we share him with them. We consider Jesus when we wonder what we're supposed to do with our lives. Because he's the very Lord of this house of his. He's the very Lord of our lives. So we should consider what he thinks, what he desires, what pleases him. Because we know that in fact that is best. We should consider him even when we face that final enemy, death itself. Because he is the one who has freed us from the fear of death and the slavery that that brings. Because death has no sting for those who believe. And we should consider him then. See, the very life of a Christian is to be wrapped around this consideration of Jesus. So let me ask you, is he your consideration? Is he your hope? The way he puts it now finally in verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, the question is, is, is he our hope, this one Jesus? That's a very interesting way to put it as the author of Hebrews does. He says, and we are his house, that is his household, if. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like ifs in, in Scripture. They make me a bit uneasy. And the author of Hebrews is happy that it makes us uneasy, those ifs. That's why he puts them there. But you see, he has every confidence, the author of Hebrews does, as he writes to believers that if he says if, then we'll consider Jesus. Because you see, the means by which we live and the very characteristic of our lives is that we consider him and we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in that hope. Because you see, our hope isn't in us. Our hope's in Christ, who's the apostle and high priest of our confession. See, my trust isn't that I'm going to be able to maintain faith through the course of my life. That's not what I'm trusting in. I'm trusting in the fact that Jesus is the apostle of my confession. That he was sent for me. And that he will make good on his promise to raise me up on the last day. My confidence, my boasting, my hope is in him. But you know, there are times when things come against us and we begin to think that our hope must be in something else. Oh, it's in financial security or it's in my education or it's in my occupation or it's in the relationships that I have with other people or it's in the fact that I can have children or that my children are happy and healthy or that I'm happy and healthy or put my confidence in anything therein. But that can't be our hope. Because the enemy will come, we will die. We all know the short-term gains of happiness anyway. We all know the ups and downs of life. And if we live according to those, we're going to be up and down. But he says our confidence, the boasting of our hope, 
is that Christ is the apostle of our confession, that he was sent for us and to do the will of the Father, and the Father was to raise us up, and so we trust that he'll do that. And that's our hope. And the author of Hebrews is trying to back us into a corner, you see. He's always going to be doing that. And we'll flesh this out in the rest of chapter 3. We haven't got time to do that today. But he's trying to back us into a corner. And he's trying to get us to be honest. And ask that very important question. Who is my hope? Because you see, Christianity isn't something that we just sort of decide on on one day, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, and then we're set and that's it and we never have to consider it again. No, those who have received this heavenly calling or the holy brothers of Jesus are those who follow him. And that isn't to mean that we follow him perfectly all the time. And that doesn't mean that we don't drift from time to time. In fact, that's really why the author of Hebrews is writing to pull us back. And reminding us to consider Jesus. And he does it with this confidence. He's saying, listen, believer. If you're straying, if you're struggling, if you're anxious, if you're doubting, if you're suffering. I know that if you consider Jesus, you'll hold fast to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I pray that Jesus not be at all far from our thoughts. That he be close at hand. And I pray that what characterizes each of us as we we leave here today is the fact that our minds never stray from him. That as we're driving, <clears throat> he will be on our minds. And as we're reading, he'll be on our minds. And as we're watching television, he'll be on our minds. As we're raising our children and doing our work and going to school, that he'll be on our minds. And that as we make these comparisons to everything else, all else will be in a whole other category. And our confidence and the boasting of our hope will be in him alone and we will then know that we are his house and this I pray in Jesus name Amen please stand for the benediction as you do I remind you that there are elders available to pray so please take advantage of that in the office area the response to the benediction is Christ is my hope Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now look to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To our only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ and be glory, dominion, majesty and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ is my hope. Hallelujah.